Hello, welcome to Church Life Today. I'm Tim O'Malley, Managing Director of the McGrath Institute for Church Life. There's a renewal of liturgical music happening in the United States that you might not be aware of. Seminarians are increasingly learning chant and discovering the great treasury of music in the tradition. The University of Notre Dame's own sacred music program is part of this. But there's also the work that's being done by folks like Alexis Katarna, who is the director of music at St. Mary's Seminary in Houston, Texas, uh, and is also an adjunct professor at the University of St. Thomas. Alexis, welcome to Church Life Today. Thank you for having me, Tim. So let's just start with a question that I assume a lot of people have asked you before, which is, how in the world did you become a liturgical musician? Uh, you know, it's not, it's not the vocation that everyone chooses. What, what, what's your own story that led you there? Well, it's really interesting because it's not something I actually ever really imagined that I would do. Um, when I was in elementary school, I wanted to be a math teacher. Um, perhaps when I was 9 or 10 years old, I had started to figure out that I wanted to be a musician of some kind. Um, and so I entered undergraduate studies as a bassoonist and pianist um, and explored all of that, I finished even graduate school with a degree in bassoon, but um, was working on the side all the way along in a Catholic parish. Um, I had started in children's choir uh, as a, uh, a seven-year-old, I think, um, and I had been involved in church music the entire time, but I never really thought about it as a career. And after I finished my master's degree in music, I was working um, part-time at a parish, and the pastor said to me, you really should look into... Uh, liturgy, and I was I was only working at the parish because it was an easy thing to do on the side, right? To make some money while you're in grad school, if you can play piano or organ, then uh, hey, that's a great way you don't have to work somewhere else, right? Um, and so you like it, and you're used to it, and it's something that's easy to do. And he said you should check out the liturgical institute. I was in Wisconsin at the time, and so I went there for a tour, not really thinking that still not not thinking that I wanted to be a church musician necessarily, um, but was incredibly moved by that experience and really started thinking about it as something that could be uh, a place where I could use my gifts and talents at the service of the church um, and also, you know, some kind of livelihood on the side. And so I, I entered classes there, um, not necessarily still at that point, having decided that I always wanted to be a parish musician um, and was incredibly formed, um, totally changed my uh, approach to actually the faith in general. Um, and then I, I really started seeing uh, working for the church as something that was not... Um, you know, about making money on the side or anything else, but a place to give back gifts um, that I'd been given for the glory of God. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, uh, you know, it's not, it's not making millions on the side, I assume. No, <laughs> no. 
it certainly isn't. <laughs> uh, but the, you know that that it's an interesting story because you know you find yourself entering into this uh, and perhaps not even planning it. Uh, but now you you know you're a you're a major person in this field. You're, you're forming seminarians for the whole church. You're you're working in Houston um, in the, in a sort of a burgeoning diocese. Uh, and I, you know, I have a question for you. You know, in, in this role, what trends have you noticed? I, I mean, uh, where where is the church going musically, based upon your own assessment, having worked uh, right now in, in a variety of jobs? Well, it's it's very interesting because Houston is a, a very diverse city. I mean, there are almost eight million people in the surrounding area, and we have mass in sixteen or seventeen languages on a Sunday. Um, and these massive mega parishes. Um, I mean, Cardinal often says that he could open ten more parishes tomorrow if he had the priests and the money to be able <laughs> to to build them, right? Um, and I see. In a in a, a a lot of cases, the desire to one be united in something that's a, a common language, um, we understand. I think all of us understand, even intuitively, even if we can't express it intellectually, that this is uh, the mass is meant to be universal. But I see a movement towards that in the manner in which it is celebrated and also in what people are asking for. So you'll certainly always hear people talk about their likes and dislikes, but there's also, I've noticed, a growing trend where it's, it's not necessarily speaking about what you like and dislike because that can be, you know, uh, kept for the car ride home. That's actually one of my favorite questions to ask my students. What do you think I listen to in my car? Um, <laughs> And it's not Gregorian chant all of the time. <laughs> Let me tell you that, right? <laughs> um, but the um, the idea that we're exploring the music that is ritual music, um, a recapturing perhaps of something that I would say many people in my generation feel like was it was lost or not handed down to them, um, and they're wondering what this is, this ancient music that's been part of the church's tradition for so long, and we only see it, you know, we've only ever heard of it in a few places, or does it only belong in the extraordinary form? There's all these questions surrounding it. Um, but a real yearning for a sense of mystery, a sense of transcendence, and... Um, I, I think you see that reflected in the music. Now, that doesn't mean that it's only unaccompanied Gregorian chant, right? Um, but the desire to hear music, even by new, newer composers, like uh, Morton Lordson or someone who's writing chant-inspired polyphony, um, or uh, the settings of all of the proper antiphons, but chanted in English or in other... Uh, in other forms, like hymn tune introits. Um, and so people exploring what what is the music of the Mass, rather than singing any music at Mass, um, that there's been a recapturing uh, in a lot of the imaginations of the people, especially young people, uh, the desire to to have some... some uh, and it's it, not nostalgic experience of the past, right? But something that connects us to previous generations. 
do, are we connected to those who came before us? How do we hand on our patrimony, um, you know, in the manner in which we do culturally, certainly, do we, uh, do we hand on our families' meal traditions, for instance? Now, at least everybody goes home for Thanksgiving, right? Um, but the idea that uh, we're looking for that in other places, what is our ritual past and what does that look like and so I, I find that young people are very curious about it in the best way yeah that's a great it's an excellent point um i mean what do you say to someone who will say it in return well we, well you know uh actually um there's a lot more i guess that some people young people want this but you know what actually most young people um want something else. They want engaging music. They want music that gets them entertained. When I go on the road, people say like, you know, the problem with the mass is that there's not enough drum. Uh, there's not enough energy. I mean, what, what do you say to this when, when, when this is the assessment of what young people want? And often it's driving youth ministry programs. It's driving national music conferences. You know, what do you say to someone like them? Well, honestly, I, I don't think it's worth arguing about a particular point, right? To drum or not to drum, right? Um, but <laughs> but, but the, not to uh, drum. But not to drum. No, but to ask the question about what, what is the purpose of the liturgy and have we taught anything about that? Yeah. It, um, yeah. And starting there, yeah. it's not even a musical question. Right, right. It's um, a theological question, right? It is. Then we understand from that what the nature of participation is, what does it mean to actively participate, how should we feel in the Mass, right? Because we're always looking for a feeling um, or encouraging some kind of, we have a feeling of conversion. Well, is that really the purpose of the Mass, to make you feel? Um, or, I, I, you know, I know this sounds cold when I say it, um, but, you know, it, it actually doesn't really matter how you feel <laughs> at the Mass. I don't care how you feel. Um, you know, that, that idea, now you're not going to go out and say that to someone who's struggling with, these, uh, with this question, right? But um, asking if we've even tried that. I think you can take that great Chesterton quote, it's not that the Christian ideal has been tried and found wanting, but it hasn't even been tried. I ask that about the liturgy, about sacred music. Have we tried what the Church has held up as the um, holding the central place in terms of music? Um, have we made efforts in that regard to teach people to catechize them? Really, not just to say that this rubrically, this is what belongs here, but to explore the sacramental meaning um, contained within these signs. Yeah, so, so that's my question. How do you start to actually form people to do this? Because, you know, you, you found yourself in a great position. You, you were at a parish. You end up at the liturgical institute. You end up getting a theological education almost seemingly by accident. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, but there's not—it's not the case in my own experience, having worked uh, in parish formation— that, that these liturgical musicians are naturally finding these spaces where this is going to happen. So, you know, what, is the, what could the church do at an institutional level to better support the formation of liturgical musicians in the kind of vision you're offering? Well, I think there are, are multiple layers to this. Now, of course, offering programs, workshops, seminars, all sorts of that, or, you know, we've started this new Master of Sacred Music program here at the University of St. Thomas. All of that is great. Um, but I think it goes beyond sitting in a classroom telling someone what this all looks like. Um, so the idea of having social functions, 
um, we started here a little series of sacred music socials where people who want to talk about this or are curious or have some inclination to there's something more out there than just doing the same thing I've been doing can come and sit and talk with each other so they can share resources, so they can share uh, also their approach. How, how did you start singing uh, the proper text at communion. What does that actually look like? How did you teach your choir about it? And so it's being transmitted from real person to real person rather than um, simply instructed in some kind of classroom situation which seems divorced from uh, the pastoral situation in which you find yourself. So I, I think it starts, honestly, as a grassroots movement do we host something that says come and talk about this together and then provide further opportunities to pray in that do we model this anywhere and i think that's um, partly where the seminary comes into play i know this is uh, true at other seminaries too um the the great debate about whether uh the music for the mass at the seminary should be what you see in a parish or should it be modeling um or is it actually both and what does that mean um, and if you look at the ratio, uh, at, at the uh, program of priestly formation, um, it speaks to this concept liturgically um, that we are fostering an authentic sense of the holy mysteries for these men. And so do we provide that in opportunities for parish musicians? I think that's something that a seminary is equipped to be able to offer to other people uh, in the area, as well as offices of worship or centers of liturgy, um, universities that have these programs, not just a certificate in this or a course that you can get a grade because you did a lot of homework and took an exam and passed it, right? So fine, you can you know, regurgitate your information to me. That's not what I'm looking for in the class. Um, but how do we foster an understanding? I think it's by having conversations and be w being willing to hear the objections, um, to hear, and not, not objections, I don't mean to say that in, in the negative sense, right? But the, the questions that people really have, I don't know how this music makes me feel, right? This other one feels good because I feel grounded to the earth. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about that statement then. And doing it in a way, um, in a social context, I think, really encourages free and open dialogue so we're able to transcend the tyranny of taste. There's a priest in town who uses that phrase, and I, I quite like it. The tyranny of taste. Yeah, I want to talk about that. Something else. I'd love to talk about yeah. that. So, so <laughs> let's actually talk about that phrase. You're listening to Church Life Today with Alexis Katarna, uh, Director of Music at St. Mary's Seminary in Houston, Texas. Um, tyranny of taste, right? So um, I like this. You've already mentioned it. It's a matter of like. It's what I like. It's what I... But you're, talk, you're talking about a kind of reasonability to it, a rationality to the music that's sung. Um, can you describe a moment where this kind of conversation has worked, uh, whether it's in your work in the seminary, whether it's your work in, in a parish? Uh, when, when does this sort of getting to the deeper level, when's it worked? I think it, uh, a great example is in actually just back in the parish with the choir, introducing new music. Why do we have to sing this? I don't like this piece. Okay, you don't like it, but that person over there likes it, and that person over there likes it, and then they don't like this thing that you like, and at what point can we possibly meet 
all of the likes of all of the different people. So how can a, the average parish musician expect to live up to that standard of meeting, you know, there's a parish here in town that has almost 14,000 families. Oh, dear. How oh can dear. you, yeah, I know. Uh, how can you possibly meet all of their likes? You can't. I mean, that could be 14,000 different likes or more, right? So um, in that sense, what is the, uh, where is the standard set? Is it the likes of the music director or the pastor? I mean, sometimes certainly that comes out, right? Um, but what should it be? And so when you ask them that question, you throw it back at them. What would you do then in this situation? How do you decide? And oftentimes they actually just say, I don't know. Um, or I struggle with that myself. If it's another music director and they're, you know, you're having this conversation, uh, I, don't, I struggle with it myself. I don't know. I can't meet. You know, if I do this one thing, the, this group of people doesn't like it, and then I sing this other thing, and I have other people sending me angry emails. Um, how do you mitigate uh, this this issue? And so I think throwing it back to them as a question, how honestly would you handle that? Then you start to break away um, the concept of personal taste and ask what can what could be the standard for music in the liturgy then? What is the authority to tell us that? Now, we don't like the word authority, of course, here, right? But how do we learn about this? And then open it up from the perspective, not of rubrics again. So just because Germ 48 says X, Y, Z, right, doesn't mean that somebody um, that's going to move someone to want to sing an entrance antiphon, right? Um, but if you if you talk about perhaps the history of those texts for this, uh, you know, um, for the first Sunday of Advent. Well, how ancient is Ad Tele Bavi? Um, and you look at that and say there are lots of options surrounding it. Um, but can we look at that text um, and then understand how we come to um, a, a standard that is based on scripture. What is the standard? The, the logos is the standard, right? And then open it up theologically. I think um, when you hand it back to them in that way, what would you do? Then you open up the conversation to accept another, uh, another option besides your, your own personal taste. Yes, thank you. thank you so much. I mean, you're describing the role of a liturgical musician today as an educator, not just as uh, someone who's going to uh, pick music and set a mood, but someone who really does an act of theological education. So um, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, we were speaking today to Alexis Katarna, Director of Music at St. Mary's Seminary in Houston, Texas. Uh, Alexis, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Tim, for having me. Hey guys, it's Tierney Verdoliak from the McGrath Institute for Church Life. Today, we're taking to the sidewalks of the University of Notre Dame to ask college students a question about their faith life. 
If you were to have coffee with one saint, who would you choose and what, what question would you ask? I think I would go with Padre Pio because he had like hand-to-hand -hand combat with Satan during the night. Like that was one of his, you know. What would you, what would you ask him? I'd be like, I'd ask him, what did he look like? And what did, and what did he like do? You know, I would ask how those exchanges went down. Because that's absurd. I mean, we're all fighting like a spiritual battle, but it's, a lot of times it feels really intangible. And this guy like actually duped it out with, you know, allegedly saved himself. So I think that'd be really fun, not fun, but cool to hear about. Um, If you were to have coffee with a saint, who would it be and what would you ask? Oh, man. Ooh. I guess I would have coffee with St. Teresa Lisieux. Um, I'd ask, oh my gosh, there's so many things to ask. Um, I guess I'd ask her how she would apply her philosophy of making the little things count to a globalized context. Where you can make where you can make big change. If you could go to coffee with one saint, who would it be, and what would you talk to them about? Oh, definitely, Pier um, Giorgio Frassati, and I just talk about being a man and how like to really bring in all of like my friends and other guys to want to be a saint and like you know really how to be the manliest man ever, so. <laughs> if you were to go get coffee with a saint, who would you choose and uh, why? What would you ask him or her? Um, I would choose Saint Pope St. John Paul II um, because I feel like he really related, especially to the youth. I was also, this is a fun fact, I was kissed by him when I was a infant so um, yeah <laughs> but yeah I would like to talk to him about especially the times nowadays uh, I feel like faith among our youth is really lacking and it's becoming really um, youth are taking like a more casual approach to faith and I'd like to talk to him about how he would like go about or like combat that If you could go to coffee with any saint, who would it be and why? Ooh, that's a good one. Either Joan of Arc or Saint Cecilia. What would you want to talk to? Saint Cecilia. Singing. She likes. She's musical, so she likes. I would ask her to sing. If you were to go to coffee with any saint, who would you choose, and what would you want to talk about? I don't know. My answer is going to be bad. Fine. Okay, so it would be funny. I would go to coffee with Saint Philomena my entire life. My family prayed to Saint Philomena. We called her the parking lot saint. However, we recently found out that she's not the parking lot saint. She's actually the saint of unwed mothers.